Our first reading is from Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Aaron. Abraham took his wife, Sarah, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possession they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Aaron. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land of, to the place at Seshem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and A on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. Here ends our first reading. Now have our second hymn. Our second reading is from Revelation, chapter 14, verses 1 to 7, and chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb, standing on the Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of the harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, they are blameless. 
Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. We're beginning um, our autumn series this week, and uh, we follow here at Bloomsbury, or have done for the last couple of years, um, a, a lectionary pattern known as the narrative lectionary. So just to situate what we're going to be doing over the coming months, uh, between now and Advent, we're going to be spending some time in the Hebrew Bible, looking at the stories of God's revelation to the people of Israel. And then we pick up the Jesus story with the birth narrative in the, in the run up to Christmas. And then after Christmas, between Christmas and Easter, we'll be spending time in one of the Gospels. So we're beginning, uh, not quite at the beginning, but we're certainly beginning near the beginning in the book of Genesis today. Uh, and that's why we had that reading earlier from um, Genesis, looking at the story of uh, Abraham and the covenant that God established with Abraham. So as we begin pondering about this long trajectory of God's self-revelation to humanity, which begins back in the mythic prehistory of the people of Israel and concludes with us gathered in person and online this morning at Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church as the very, very latest moment in this long story. I have to just take a moment to stop and pause and ask, do you ever have those days where you wonder whether it's all worth it? When you wonder where it's all going, really, what the point of it all is, um, the stress, the hassle, the disappointment, the frustration. I'm talking, of course, about the day by day reality of church life. 
I mean, it's such a great idea in theory, isn't it? A community of people filled with the spirit of God, walking the path of Christ together in loving relationship with one another and in faithful communion with God. And yet the reality is so often so far short of that ideal. You don't have to be around church communities for very long to realise that arguments, relationship problems, sinful behaviour and petty politics are all too frequently the day-to-day -day reality of church community life. Recent research into why people leave church shows that whilst many pastors believe that people leave their churches due to a loss of personal faith, the reality, when you actually ask people, is often more prosaic and in many ways, I think, more worrying. It tends to be a general disillusionment with the structures and institutions of church that is far more influential in people choosing to stop coming along on a Sunday morning than any actual disillusionment with God. To put that another way, it's not God that causes most people to leave, it's the other people. And then, and then there's the numbers issue. I mean, we might in theory believe that through us, Jesus Christ offers good news, the best news to all people. But either we're not that great at communicating this, or a lot of people don't actually want that kind of good news. And we tell ourselves that numbers aren't everything and that depth is as important as breadth. But fundamentally, if no one comes, we've not got much of a church. And I'm aware of the irony that today I'm delivering this sermon by Zoom to a congregation made up of some present in the building and some watching live on Zoom from their homes and then some catching up during the week via YouTube or the podcast. Churches across all the major denominations are reporting a sustained decline in attendance through 2022 compared to pre-pandemic levels. One might wonder why we carry on. I remember reading an article in the Baptist Minister's Journal a few years back, written by a recently retired and anonymous minister who said that the moment he received his pension, he stopped going to church altogether. With unnerving honesty, he said that he'd staved the course to retirement because he felt he had had to be there. But that over the years, he had utterly lost faith, not in God, but in the people of God. And if I'm honest, there have been moments in my ministry when darkening the door of never darkening the door of a church again, um, any church, has seemed like a tempting proposition. Thankfully, those moments have tended to pass for me. But honestly, is this all worth it? Is it worth the stress, the hassle? The running around, trying to get things set up, the disappointments, 
the frustrations, the wondering if people will ever change, if people want to change, the wondering what difference it all actually makes. I think it is a legitimate question to ask, what is the point of being part of this so-called people of God? There are many people sitting in congregations across our city who are asking what on earth the point is of persevering with church. Is this just a passing institution? And there are many others in our city who used to be in our churches, who've come to the conclusion that it's just not worth the struggle. So what is the point? Is all of this really worth it? Well, to address that question, I want to take us back to the beginning, back to that passage we had read to us a few moments ago from Genesis chapter 12. They sometimes say if you want to understand an institution, you have to understand its history. This is true of a church like Bloomsbury, and if you've not read our church history, I really recommend that you do so. We have some books available uh, that we can pass on to you if, if you're interested in those, or it's all on the website. Find out a bit more about our institution, but, but let's think for a minute about beyond Bloomsbury. Let's rewind back more than the 174 years that we've been part of this story. Let's go right the way back before the founding of Christianity. Let's go right the way back to the original revelation of God to Abraham. And here in this story of the call of Abraham, we find an account of the moment it all starts. Here with the call of Abraham, we get the story of the beginning of the journey that we are now part of. The origin of the called and commissioned people of God which in our time looks like Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church and all of our sister and brother churches across the city and the world. It all begins right here in Abraham's encounter with God. From this moment, we get Judaism, we get Christianity, we get Islam, we get the great world religions, and it all comes back to this one moment of divine encounter and this story which echoes down the millennia to us shows us that the call to be the people of God the call to follow wherever that path leads has always been and must always be a call to be good news to all the nations to all peoples it seems that the foundational principle of the life of faith established right here in the origin of the people of God is nothing less than gospel itself. And that is a gospel of good news for all peoples, not just for some. The story of where that trajectory has gone down the millennia, as we will explore in a little bit in a minute, has been of people constantly trying to close it down, to exclude some and make themselves the special in people. But right back there at the beginning, 
with the call of Abraham, the vision for God's covenant established with humans was never just for the few. It was always for the many. If you uh, read through the book of Genesis, uh, and it, it's a great read, these early chapters, uh, the move from chapter 11 to chapter 12 is uh, an important um, literary rhetorical shift within the book. It, and it describes a fundamental shift in the story of God's relationship with humans. It is, if you like, the move from prehistory to human history. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, describes it as the most important structural break in the Old Testament, the, the shift from chapter 11 to chapter 12, where we picked up the story today, because it marks this point of transition between the story of humankind and the story of Israel, between the history of curse and the history of blessing. If you were to read through uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, you would meet the stories of humanity's inability to save itself. From the fall from grace in the story of Eden to the growing hostility between humanity and creation as Adam and Eve are, are charged with tilling the ground and having to work hard to survive on the planet. From the first murder to the more general wickedness of humanity, from the destructiveness of the Great Flood to the curse of Babel. Through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we find God's good creation on a downward spiral. With the story of humanity up to this point leading to nothing, it seems, beyond barrenness and futility. And so we get to the Abraham story. And in Abraham's story, his wife, Sarah, is famously unable to have children, having grown too old. And so the promise from God that Abraham will be the father of a great nation, an uncountable multitude, is one which seems, at least to Abraham and Sarah, when the promise is first given, as a laughable dream. The barrenness of Sarah in the story of Abraham and Sarah is in many ways symbolic of the barrenness of the world as a whole at that point, which every year grows older without bearing the fruit of new life. The way Genesis has been telling the story up until this point, humanity is going nowhere other than an eventual petering out and a dwindling away to nothing. Now, I'm very aware of the pastoral sensitivities uh, around childlessness. And I want to just note that I know this can be a difficult issue for some. And if anybody ever wants to talk through issues like that, please do, you know, feel free to contact me. We are, I'm always available for those sorts of opportunities to talk through when life doesn't take you where you want life to go in terms of childbearing. And I'm also aware that using an issue such as childlessness as a metaphor can seem crass to some. But this is what the book of Genesis does. So I'd ask you to kind of try and, and roll with what Genesis is seeking to do here as it holds Sarah's story of disappointment at not having children alongside a broader narrative 
of the world on a path towards death and ending and dwindling away. Genesis is painting a picture of a world that has, has run its course, it's had its life, it's dying without issue. The promise and call of God has come to nothing. And then into that breaks God's voice to Abraham and Sarah. Just as the God of creation called something from nothing, called order from chaos, so in the story of Abraham and Sarah, the same God calls humanity to new life, calling forth life from Sarah's barren womb, calling forth life into a sterile world, calling people of death to experience the gift of life, which they meet through covenant relationship with the living God. And this call of God then echoes through history, through the prophets of Israel down to the first century, and it's a call repeated in the invitation of Jesus, who invited his own disciples to follow him. And the call of Jesus is likewise heard as a summons to move from chaos to order. It's an invitation to move from barrenness to new life. And like the call of God to Abraham, the call of Jesus to his disciples is a call that is accompanied by promise. The Lord told Abraham that through his descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And to this end promised Abraham a new world, where humans are reborn, are born again into covenant relationship with their creator. Through the call of God and the promise of the covenant, a new way of being human opened before Abraham, bringing into existence that which could not be achieved by other means. The building of the tower to the heavens at Babel had failed to bring humans any closer to God, but through God's gracious intervention, the covenant established with Abraham brought God close to humans. Humans had to discover that they could not reach God through their own efforts and that the gift of new life comes from God alone, as a gift from the God of love, and not as the result of human activity and attainment. The promise of God is fulfilled by God's actions alone, rather than by the actions and efforts of humans. The lesson of the call of God on Abraham is that people are not ultimately reconciled to God through Abraham's efforts, nor through the efforts of his descendants, nor through the efforts of humanity as a whole, but only in and through the one who calls and gives the gift of new life. But this, this call to Abraham and the promise to him and his descendants that they would be a blessing to all nations, also carried with it a commission. God's chosen people are not called to live in a vacuum, separated and holy 
kept apart from the world. Not a bit of it. Rather, they are called to live with, for and among the nations of the world. The good news for Abraham is also to be good news for all peoples, all nations, without qualification, without barrier, without condition. Just as the Lord called Abraham into new relationship, so through Abraham and his descendants, that same call must go to all people. The same promise of new life in the face of disappointment and death. New life in relationship with God was not just for Abraham, not just for Abraham's descendants, but for all nations. Never just for one nation under God. In the New Testament, we find that both Paul and Peter grasp this truth and see its fulfilment in Christ Jesus as good news for all peoples. So in his letter to the Galatians, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. And in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter declares to his Jewish congregation that they, and this is Acts chapter 3 verse 25, that they are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can you see what's going on here? When God broke into human lives and into the situation of humanity by establishing a covenant with Abraham, that covenant was always to be a covenant of blessing that went beyond the people of Abraham. And sure enough, Paul and Peter speak of that good news to all nations, finding its fulfilment in Jesus. This is the true purpose of the people of God, and it has been so from the very beginning. The good news is for all nations, for all peoples, and has always been so. And this same principle can be found in the final book of the Bible as we bookend scripture with our readings from Genesis and Revelation. And in Revelation, the church, the people of God, is described as the bride of Christ. Now, I don't want to get too earthy about this on a Sunday morning, but seeing as we've already spoken about Sarah's child of promise, it seems to me that there is another promise inherent in this image of bride and bridegroom that we find in the book of Revelation. In the first century world, the celebration of a wedding always included the hope that it wouldn't be long before new life came into being as a result of the consummation of the relationship between bride and groom. All of which raises an interesting question. 
Given that in the book of Revelation, John describes Jesus as the lamb that was slain and the church as the bride of the lamb, one might well ask who it is that is envisaged here as the offspring of this marriage between the church and her saviour, between Christ and his church. And I think the story of Abraham helps us here. The covenant with Abraham was built upon a marriage with the barren Sarah becoming miraculously pregnant in old age, thereby beginning the great nation through whom we are told all nations will be blessed. And it may be that in the book of Revelation, this image of final consummation between Christ and the church, which Revelation depicts as a marriage between a bride and her husband, it may well be that this has in view the ultimate fulfilment of the promise made all those millennia ago to Abraham. And if this is the case, then the marriage of the bride and the lamb in the book of Revelation may not be so much the end of the story as a depiction of its present reality. This may not be a marriage that has yet to happen and which will occur only at the end of time. Rather, it could be read as a description of the here and now, of us, of the church now, united with her Lord in loving and fruitful union. Rather than seeing the marriage of, the Christ, of Christ and the church as the final goal of creation, I think we find before us here the possibility that there is a much greater inheritance due to the church in the present. As the embryonic promise of God's covenant with Abraham is brought to birth in the proclamation of a gospel for every nation and tribe and language and people. As the book of Revelation so gloriously puts it in chapter 14. Revelation ends with this picture of the church as the bride of Christ, and she is seen joining her voice with the voice of the Spirit, calling all the nations of the world, all those beyond the gates of the New Jerusalem, to enter into the city and drink from the river of life which runs through the city. The covenant which began with Abraham finds its fulfilment as the people of God here and now, in our present, become a source of blessing to all peoples releasing the peoples of the world from their enslavements to the forces of evil, enabling them to enter into the new life that is theirs when they're born again as citizens of the heavenly city. As Jesus's famous conversation with Nicodemus shows, those who want to enter into the new life that begins in Jesus must do so by being born again, through being born again from above. And they do so as those who are born into the new life that came into the sterile world of Abraham through the barren womb of Sarah. And they do so at the invitation of the spirit to enter into a life giving relationship with Jesus. This same principle can also be found in the image of the 144,000, another one of Revelation's uh, creative symbols for the faithful and chosen people of God. Within John's story, only the 144,000 can sing the song of salvation to the earth. 
Only the faithful people of God can speak the gospel to the nations. However, what becomes clear is that through their faithful proclamation of the gospel for all, they are seen to be the first fruits of a much greater harvest. The seed is sown and the Lord brings it to bountiful and countless fruition. This image evokes the Jewish practice of offering the first fruits of a harvest to symbolise the fact that the whole harvest belongs to God. And understood in this way, the faithful witness of the church is seen to result in good news for all the nations of the earth, as the covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in the gathering in of a great harvest of which the church, the people of God, are simply the first fruits. So to return to the question with which we started, is it really worth it? Is it really worth persevering in witness even through difficulty and persecution? Is it really worth persevering with the people of God even when all seems lost and despair, despondency and defeat feel like they lurk around every corner? Well, yes, it is. Because the gospel is good news for every nation, for all peoples. And the ultimate result of the faithful witnessing of the people of God is the freeing of all nations from their enslavements to the forces of evil, as the coming judgment of God consigns to the flames all those systems and principalities and powers which distort, demean and destroy the covenant relationship into which God calls the people of the earth. When seen from the perspective of the earth, the people of God might be a feeble, frail and flawed grouping, with the good news hard to discern within them. But when seen from heaven's perspective, those of us who gather faithfully and steadfastly in the name of Christ are seen to be the fulfilment of God's covenant with Abraham. We are those who proclaim a gospel which is good news for all peoples, for all nations. We are those who pave the way for the eventual ingathering of all people who pass through judgment to hope and new life. So if we look around us at a world that seems in despair, with war and violence, with catastrophe and climate change, with rampant nationalism, overriding concerns for the common good. This world, as much as ever it did, needs those of us who own a different allegiance. Those of us who know that it is our heavenly king who is calling us to bear witness to the fact that there is a better way of being human. And we can do this because we are the heirs of Abraham. We are those who have been born again and from above. We are the first fruits of the great harvest that God is bringing into being. We are those who will in turn bring to birth a people so great that none can count. And this surely is good news. It is good news for all the nations. It is good news for the whole world. This is our calling to be faithful witnesses to the gospel of Christ 
Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you very much to Simon for this thoughtful sermon bringing the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham right in the middle of this church. Let's take a few moments to reflect on this and I'm asking my panelists Evelyn and Tommaso on the screen to come on for the panel. with us. Evelyn, do you want to start? Thank you, Simon, for this message. And it's good news for us and for the community. And uh, for me, it's uh, always been important to have faith and community. And I think it's very important to have this vertical and horizontal dimension. And uh, also that the community is very open and open to everybody and that the good news are for everybody and this is also very important and i think when somebody moves to another place uh, for instance our children but also we when we came here the first thing you look for is your community and you tend to visit a few of them and then to choose one where you feel at ease and um, then of course you can say there may be disappointment or there may be joy but i mean you tend to establish relationships and uh, it's very important to be grounded in a community to be able to spread this good news so we are very uh, thankful for being here and being part of this community yes i hope you can hear me um, I fully agree uh, with you. Um, what really struck me about Simon's sermon, and I won't talk for long because I will go back to some of these themes in the prayers, but is this uh, link and passage from the particular to the general and then to the universal. And this is something very special to me, but also I think very special to the church experience. It's one of the very few places, perhaps the only place where one can feel both connected to a long history and open toward the future. Um, and that's something that really makes being rooted into a particular congregation, being grounded into a particular congregation, uh, really important. Thank you, Tommaso. I'll, I'll reflect on this uh, as well. And, and I think this notion on, of horizontal and, and vertical is, is, is very relevant. Indeed, uh, my background uh, as, a, as a child and, and young adult was in, in a church that was I think very strongly rooted in Christian faith, but 
extremely self-centered, self-centered on theological matters, self-centered on ways to run a community. And its only way of looking outside was, well, we need to convert people and only if they convert and they become exactly like us will they be saved. And that is our mission outside. That is something that I felt not very comfortable with. And it is something also when, when you have this self-centeredness uh, that leads to disputes and sometimes splinters. And, and as Simon says, it's, it's people who cause problems, not, not God. So, so like Evelyn said, we, we feel very much at home here on a church that is looking out to the world, is looking out to the peoples of the world in a, in a, very, in a very open way and feels its engagement goes beyond into the social sphere and in a broad sense into even the political sphere, if you can think of uh, you know, taking a stance on, on, on issues. If I may, that creates two challenges, I think. One is, a, one is a, a personal one, maybe, which is whilst you look very wide and, and broad, there is a, a risk that you, you know, your, your roots become a little too shallow. And the two things go together. And Christian faith is not just a commentary on current affairs, it is also deeply rooted uh, faith. And that's a challenge that I sometimes personally feel. It's also a challenge for us as a community, I think, because we're only as good in our, in the way we project ourselves outside as we are strong and rooted as a, as a community. And, and strong also in the sense of you know the numbers we are uh, that we we can be together and i think therein probably lies a challenge for our church um, looking looking out uh, in the future but but again you know we, we we're looking we're looking for wide and we're looking for deep and i think that's uh, that's what echoed for me in this in this um, Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, as we gather today, we hope that your spirit warms our hearts and enlightens our minds within this congregation. Not as mere individuals who meet up from time to time, but as parts of a whole, blessed people entering into covenants with each other and with you. May we refrain from breeding false certainties and self-serving biases about ourselves, boasting about our virtues and hiding our faults. May we be able to do good and make the right decisions without disparaging those we disagree with, without neglecting those we cannot hear 
or sea. And without forgetting those who are no longer with us, but shaped our intellectual, moral, and spiritual journey. May we realize that each society is a partnership between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born, and fully grasp the foundational character and far-reaching implications of those bonds. Almighty and eternal God, as we mourn the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, we are reminded of the frailty and fleetingness of human life. For nothing on earth lasts forever. We therefore give thanks to all those who give their time selflessly, pledging to serve in the interest of others. From those performing seemingly humble, ordinary jobs, such as keeping our streets clean and safe, to those holding political power or retaining the highest privileges and prerogatives in our land. We pay homage to everyone who is committed to upholding the common good. And as we often witness or taste the bitter fruits of injustice, praying for the family of Chris Kaba and for all the victims of violence, may we acknowledge that differences of class, race, gender, and faith are transcended in your kingdom. That every act of service compassion, and brotherly love is a direct challenge to the myriad of barriers that divide us in this world. Almighty and eternal God, as we think of Bloomsbury, we are conscious of the importance of feeling at home here, of inhabiting a place that nourishes our body and our soul, the memories of which are inwrought with affection and whose very existence gives us the love of tender kinship we cannot get anywhere else. We are indebted to all those before us who kept this church up and running Generations of Christians whose names we do not know or do not recall, whose generosity and restless efforts made it possible for us to be here. We are grateful to them, as well as to all those who, from other congregations, organizations, institutions, and groups, help Bloomsbury grow and thrive throughout history. May we learn to love people universally by loving the particular people we are acquainted with, 
and know the universal through the particular we experience as we strive to preserve our small, concrete entry into the universal church. Amen. And our final blessing. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord smile upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord show his favor to us and give us peace. Amen. <laughs>